Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay, so without further ado, Marlon James is the author of the New York Times bestseller, A Brief History of Seven Killings, uh, the book of Night Women, and John Crow's Devil. A Brief History of Seven Killings won the Man Booker Prize, the American Book Award, and the Annisfield Wolf Award for Fiction, and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. The Book of Night Women won the Minnesota Book Award, and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, as well as the NAACP Image Award. A professor at McAllister College in St. Paul, James divides his time between Minnesota and New York. Please give a warm welcome for Marlon James. Thanks for coming out. I like to say on a school night because I'm a teacher. You know, it's 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 interesting seeing um, such a God, such a crowd. I remember um, the first reading I have when only one person showed up in a place that should remain nameless: University of Washington Bookstore. And the one person showed up because I was I was. Um, I'd become really, really quick friends with Chris Novoselic, the bassist from Nirvana, and he had decided he's going to set me up. So the one person who came was a woman he was setting me up with, <laughs> and I was like, God, somebody didn't get the memo. <laughs> so that was a pretty awkward night. <laughs> the bookstore was so embarrassed. I'm like, you're embarrassed. Imagine how she feels. <laughs> But it's great, and thank you guys for coming out. This is just this is this is amazing. Um, I'm going to talk about briefest. My briefest. I talk about this novel a little bit. Read a little bit. I'm here making sure I don't become one of those horrible people who read too long. Um, and open up for some questions. So, what you should know about this book? So, brief history. Why do I keep saying that? <laughs> so, this book with a pretty cover. Started from a fight I had with a friend of mine um, years ago. We're still friends. Um, but it was, I think, 2010, and they, they, announced the, they announced the casting for The Hobbit. And I was like, here we go again. You know, this sort of blindingly white cast. It's no diversity. We're having this thing again. I'm going to argue about diversity and inclusion. He, he's going to push back about Everything from culture to political correctness is going to be a big old mess. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I said, I can't believe the cast for The Hobbit is so white. And he was like, well, you know, the, the, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is based on British culture and British mythology and Norse culture and Norse mythology and, and all these other things. And I said, you know, Lord of the Rings isn't real. <laughs> you know, it's it's... It's like when Megan Kelly says Santa Claus is white. Santa isn't real, Megan. <laughs> I realize she's not having a good year, but still. Um, but you know, and, and I said, you know, if 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 that film had opened and we're in the Shire and there was an Asian Hobbit, nobody would have cared. And um, you know, it just went on and on and on. And I said, you know, I just keep your damn Hobbit. <laughs> Actually, says something way stronger than damn, but this is, looks like a decent crowd. Um, but it sent me on a mission. It didn't send me on a writing mission, actually. It sent me on a reading mission. It sent me, because it's one thing to talk about wanting all this inclusion and so on, but I realized that as, as a person in the diaspora, there's a lot about um, all these many Africas and these many African territories and these histories and mythologies and legends that I actually didn't know anything about, some of which I know, some of which I didn't realize I know. Um, you know, my grandfather used to tell me Anansi's stories. It never, I never, I thought they all sprung from him, which I kind of did, but more than that. So there, there, there is a lot I didn't know. And when I started researching this this book, which I didn't know was a book yet, and um, just started reading, 
um, the book almost started writing itself. In fact, it did. Um, I mean, the stories I was reading was just crazy. And the things that it was inverting was crazy. If I say something like, um, in African mythology, midnight is the noon of the dead, then all the associations that we have as people in the West, you have immediately attributed to that sentence. You're thinking of midnight, you're thinking of the witching hour, you're thinking of things that go bump in the dark. You're thinking of all these things that are ominous or maybe evil. Except the noon of the dead is the best time of day because it means your cool aunt shows up. <laughs> Chances are your grandparents are a lot cooler than your parents. So the noon of the dead is when they show up. They, yes, they're dead, but that's the time of day when you know, your pretty rocking grandma, you know, I mean, my, my grandma would say things like, you little shits having sex yet? <laughs> so that person shows up. So of course I'm dying to see her. So the, 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 all, the, 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 all the sort of um, connotations that you had when I said noon of the dead is midnight, you have to reverse when we're talking about a lot of stuff, um, a lot of stories in African mythology. Uh, by contrast, 12 noon is scary as hell. Because unlike your wussy Western vampires, I know they're pretty, but they're stupid. <laughs> is that unlike your wussy Western vampires, African vampires have no problem killing you in broad daylight. <laughs> so sure, open the window and let the sun in so we can all watch me kill you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so in a lot of these cultures, high noon is when it's scary. High noon is when you don't go outside. High noon is when you lock up everything and don't dare venture for it. Because a lot of these monsters have no, they have no interest in secrecy. They, have, they, they need to make the whole world know how invincible they are. And that's just one of the things that, um, you know, reading, reading all these things and reading all these mythologies and legends and so on inverted um, for me. Um, so I'm going to I'm actually going to read the, at the beginning and, um, and then talk some more about it. The child is dead. There's nothing left to know. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I hear there is a queen in the south who kills the man who brings her bad news. So when I give word of the boy's death, do I write my own death with it? Truth eats lies just as a crocodile eats the moon, and yet my witness is the same today as it will be tomorrow. No, I did not kill him, though I may have wanted him dead. Crave for it the way a glutton craves goat flesh. Oh, to draw a bow and fire it through his black heart, and watch it explode black blood, and to watch his eyes for when they stop blinking, and when they look but stop seeing, and to listen for his voice croaking, and hear his chest heaving a death rattle saying, Look! My wretched spirit leaves this most wretched of bodies, and to smile at such tidings and dance at such a loss. Yes, I glut at the conceit of it, but no, I did not kill him. Be your jury in your pamo. Not everything the eye sees should be spoken by the mouth. This cell is larger than the one before. I smell the dried blood of executed men. I hear their ghosts still screaming. Your bread carries weevils, and your water carries the, the piss of ten and two guards and the goat they fuck for sport. Shall I give you a story? I am just a man who some have called a wolf. The child is dead. I know the old woman brings you different news. Call him murderer, she says. Even though my only sorrow is that I did not kill her. The red-headed one said, the child's head was infested with devils. If you believe in devils, I believe in bad blood. You look like a man who has never shed blood, and yet blood sticks between your fingers. A boy you circumcise, a young girl too small for your big. Look how that thrills you. Look at you. I will give you a story. It begins with a leopard and a witch, grand inquisitor, fetish priest. No, you will not call for the guards. My mouth might say too much before they club it shut. Regard yourself. A man with 200 cows who delights in a patch of boy skin and the coo of a girl who should be no man's woman. Because that is what you seek, is it not? A dark little thing that cannot be found in 30 sacks of gold or 200 cows or 200 wives. Something that you have lost. No, it was taken from you. That light. You see it and you want it. Not light from the sun or from the thunder god in the night sky, but light with no blemish. 
Lighten a boy who has no knowledge of woman, a girl you bought for marriage, not because you need a wife, for you have 200 cows, but a wife you can tear open because you search for it in holes, black holes, wet holes, underground holes for the light that vampires look for, and you will have it. You will dress it up in ceremony, circumcision for the boy, consummation for the girl, and when they shed blood and spit and sperm and piss, you leave it all on your skin to go to the Iroka tree and use any hole you find the child is dead. And so is everyone. I walk for days through swarms of flies in a blood swamp and skin-slicing rocks in salt plains through day and night. I walked as far south as Omororo and did not know or care. Men detained me as a beggar, took me for a thief, tortured me as a traitor, and when news of the dead child reached your kingdom, arrested me as a murderer. Did you know there were five men in my cell? Four nights ago, the scarf around my neck belongs to the only man who left on two feet. He might even see from his right eye again one day. The last man was a boy. He cried. He was too shaken to beg for his life. I told him to be a man in his next life, for he's less than a worm in this one, and flung the knife right into his neck. His blood hit the floor before his knees. I let the half-blind man live, because we need stories in order to live, don't we, priest? Inquisitor, I don't know what to call you. But these are not your men. Good. Then you have no death song to sing to their widows. You have come for story, and I am moved to talk. So the gods have smiled on both of us. I will move on while you clap. <laughs> oh my God, you really shouldn't have. So, um, so Tracker, the main character Tracker is a person who's telling a story and the entire novel is basically a deposition. It's um, his eyewitness testimony. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, and the rest of the novels, the, three no the two novels that will follow, they don't follow in a part one, part two, part three. That each novel is a different character giving the same eyewitness testimony. So it's basically three people who saw the same thing. Just imagine if Rashomon were three movies. Um, I did while I was writing this. Um, but one of the characters who appears in this book quite a bit is a woman named Sogolon. She's a witch and she's 315 years old. And um, there's, this is a scene where she's talking about kings and queens and lines of succession and so on. And this is a scene where the woman in a fortress called Mantha organized a conjugal visit. That means sex. <laughs> um, so in, in, in Mantha is, is a fortress that I kind of uh, based on, a fort, on Tigray in Ethiopia. And, and fortresses like that from afar, it looks at the mountain. It doesn't look like there's anything. You come in close and you see steps and so on. And some of these fortresses, the only way, some of them don't even have steps. The only way to get there is by straps that they have, leather straps that you have to climb up in. Um, so they're very, very useful for, for um, seeing enemies a mile off, which is one of the reasons why Ethiopia wasn't invaded. Um, but they're also really good for depositing nosy relatives who want to take your throne. So if I become king, that means my brother gets banished to the fortress. Um, so this is a fortress of only women called Mantha. And this is how they organize a, a, a one royal conjugal visit. This is, so the person speaking here is Sogolan. So she has a different voice, a different accent, um, different way of speaking. Let us make this quick. The water goddess see all and know all. I am a priestess serving in a temple in Wakadishu when I go down the steps that lead to the river and up jump Bunshi. So Bunshi is what we call a mammy water or in Jamaica we call her a river mumma. You, you know her as a mermaid. So up jump Bunshi. No fear come over me, though I see she have a fishtail black like pitch. She sent me to Mantha with nothing but my leather dress, one sandal, and a mark from the house of Wakadishu. The princess Lissisola take to her room and play the chora at sunset and talk to no one. In the divine sisterhood, no one have power or class or rank, so her royal blood don't mean nothing. 
But all the sisters see her need to be alone. Word was that she walked the lands at night under moonlight to whisper to the goddess of justice and girl children how much she hated her. After a year, as I walked to the sacred hall to pour libations, she pointed at me and said, What is your use? To bring you into your royal purpose, princess. Nothing about my purpose is royal, and I am no princess, she said. Two moons, and she moved me to her side. Woman as equal, but knowing she is royal. Two moons after that, I tell her that the water goddess have greater purpose for her. Three moons more, and she believed me, after I summoned dew to lift me off the ground and above her head. No, not believe me. She believed that some, something more be to her life than a childless widow saying prayers to a goddess she hate. No, not belief. For she said, belief will get people around her killed. I said to her, no, my mistress, only belief in love do that. Accept it, return it, cherish it, but never believe love can do anything other than love. The year didn't finish before Bunshi appeared to her on the last hot night of the year, when nearly all the women, 120 and 9, went to bathe in the waterfall with nymphs, to tell her the truth about her line and why she would be the one to restore it. We will send a man. It has all been arranged, Bunshi said. Look at my life. All of it around a whole, own ordered and arranged by men. Now I must take that from womankind too. You know nothing of sisterhood. You're just a pale echo of men. The true king will be a bastard. Did this water sprite also fall on her head at birth? No, your most excellent. We have found the prince in Kalendar. Another one? They seem to be everywhere like lice, these kingdomless princes of Kalendar. A marriage to your prince make your child legitimate. And when the true line of kings return, he can claim before all lords, fuck all lords. All these kings also come from the womb of woman. What is to stop this man-child from doing just as all other man has done? Kill all men. Then rule them, princess. Rule them through him and leave this place. What if I like this place? In Fasisi, even the winds conspire against you. If it is your wish to stay, then stay, mistress. But as long as your brother is king, plagues above the earth and below the earth will visit even this place. No plague has visited so far. When is this pestilence taking place? Why not now? Maybe the gods give you time to prevent it, your excellence. Your tongue is too smooth. I do not fully trust it. Let, us, let me see this man at least. He will come to you disguised as a eunuch. If he pleases you, then we will find an elder who cares for our cause. I bring the prince from Kalendar. No man put down foot in Mantha for 100 years, but many eunuchs. None of the women would ask the eunuch to lift he robes, for the scars show horrendous knifecraft. But at the great entrance stand the big guard, daughter from a line of the tallest women in Fasisi, who grab the crotch and squeeze. Before I tell this prince, this is what you do. Forget your great discomfort and do not betray your unease or they will kill you at the gate and not care that they kill a prince. Take your balls and feel for each, then push them up into the sack into your bush. Take your kong kong and pull it hard between your legs until it touch near your bottom hole. The guard will feel your ball skin hanging on both sides of the kong kong and think you're a woman. She will not even look at your face. The prince make it all the way to Lissisola chamber before he remove veil and robe. Tall, dark, thick in hair, brown in eyes, and many years younger in age. All he know was that this is a crown princess and he will see title. He will do, Lissisolo say. Didn't think it was going to go that way, did you? <laughs> there are... For the, the few of you who had that burning question about RuPaul's Drag Race, I just answered it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll read one final thing and then um, open up the questions. Um, what else do you know? There are also testicles in this part. <laughs> um, 
so the, the, these rowdy band of this rowdy band of mercenaries and and bounty hunters and thieves and reprobates make it to the city called Dolingo, and Dolingo is like the most advanced city in the whole in in, all, in the universe of the story. And um, this is a scene where the characters Tracker is one, Mossy is another one. Mossy is an Mossy. In the book, he says he comes from the land of the Eastern Light, which means he's Arab. Um, so there's Mossy and a whole bunch of other characters. But this is where they meet the Queen of Dolingo and what happens when they encounter this kind of royalty, which is nothing like the royalty you just read. I just read to you. So, Dolingo. These were not great rocks, even though they were as wide as mountains, a thousand, six thousand, maybe in ten thousand paces all around, but the trunks of trees with little branches sprouting low, trees tall as the world itself. At first, looking up, all I could see were lights and ropes, something reaching taller than the clouds. We came upon a clearing wide as a battlefield, enough for me to see two of them. The first spread as far as the field, the second smaller. Both trunks rose above the clouds and beyond. Massey grabbed my knee. I was sh I'm sure without thinking. The first had an edifice, maybe of wood or mortar, and both that had wrapped around the base of the trunk, rising five floors, each floor maybe 80 to 100 paces high. Light flickered from some of the windows and blazed bold from others. The trunk rose dark and continued even higher, past more clouds where it split like a fork. On the left, what looked like a massive fort, huge plain walls with high windows and doors, another floor on top, and another floor on top of that, going on and on for six floors, with a deck on the fifth and a platform hanging off, held by ropes that must have been as thick as a horse's neck. At the very top, a compound with magnificent towers and roofs and of a great hall. On the right, the branch went unadorned as high as the forts, with one palace on top, and even that palace had many floors, planks, decks, and roofs of gold. What is this place, Masi said. Dolingo. I've never seen such magnificence. Do gods live here? Is this home of the gods? No, it is a home of people. I don't know if I want to meet such people, Masi said. The woman might like your mermusk. Metal crunch, gears locked, iron hit iron, and the platform lowered. The ropes all around tightened and pulleys began to spin. The platform above and coming down blocked the moon and covered us in shadow. It was as long and wide as a ship, and when it landed it shook the ground. Massey's hand still grabbed my knee. Sogolon and the girl galloped ahead, expecting us to follow. The platform was already rising and the buffalo leapt on it, sliding a little. Mossy's hand left my knee. He hopped off and wobbled a little with the rising platform. From a tower on high, someone turned a giant glass or silver cycle, perhaps a dish, that caught the moonlight and shone it down on us. This is Mkololo, the first tree and seat of the queen, Sadago said. The moon moved in so close, sheaves dropped on us. We walked on a wide stone bridge that curved over a river and met a road that had no bend. I wanted to ask, what kind of science makes a river flow from so high, but the palace stood before us, the moon made walls all white. And standing guard, two sentries in green armor. They grabbed handles and pulled the door open. We walked past them, but my hands were on my axes, and Massey grabbed his sword. Don't insult the queen's hospitality, Sogolon said. Twenty paces in flowed a moat, with a bridge no wider than three men, taking us to the other side. Heat came off the water, but fish and fish bees swam in it. We crossed the bridge and walked towards steps, watching men, women, standing beasts, and creatures I have never seen, dressed in iron plates and chain mail. The, woman, the men and women had the darkest skin I have ever seen. Here is truth. I have been to magnificent dominions across lands and under seas, but where would one start with this court? Massey stood still, struck with wonder, and I too stood, stood still. The floor sank lower than our platform, but the throne rose highest, a pyramid that was all imperial seat, with a ledge all around which several women sat, and above them, the actual throne and the actual queen. Her skin like her men, a black that came from deepest blue. 
Her crown, like a gold bird, had landed on her head and wrapped her wings around her face. Gold also lined her eyes. A vest of gold straps hung loose from her neck, and her nipples peeked out when she leaned back. Listen to me now, she said. Her voice was deeper than the hum of monks. Rumors, I already hear them. Rumors of men the color of sand, some even the color of milk. But I am queen and I believe what I wish. So I did not believe they lived, but look at one before us. The Dalingan tongue sounded like Malakal's sharp sound spoken in the quick. Massy forward his brow. He nudged me. What does she say? You don't speak the Dalingan tongue? Certainly. A fat eunuch taught me at four. Of course I don't speak it. What does she say? She talks of men she has never seen. You. Should I call him Sandman, she said. I shall call him Sandman, for I find this a funny thing. I said I find this a funny thing. The entire hall broke out in laughter, clapping, whistling, and shouts to the gods. She flashed her hand and they quit in a blink. She waved Mossy over, but he did not understand. Tracker, they laugh. Why do they laugh? She just called you Sandboy or Sandperson. This amuses them? Is he deaf? I bid him come over, the queen said. Mossy, she speaks of you. But she said nothing. She's queen, and she, if she spoke, she spoke. But she said nothing. Fuck the gods, go. Two spears poked him in the back. The guards started walking. And had Massey not moved, the blades would have pierced his skin. They went down the steps of the platform, crossed the vast floor, and the men, women, and beasts of the court stopped at the, thro and stopped at the foot of the throne. She beckoned him to come up, and the two guards, blocking the, blocking the steps, shifts away, shifted, shifted away. Chancellor, you already go to more territories than they write in all the great books. Tell me, have you ever seen such a man as this? A tall, slender man with long and thin hair stepped out to the floor. He bowed first. Most excellent queen, many time, and here's the thing, he... How come you never purchased one for me? Forgive me, my queen, are men even lighter than this? Yes, most magnificent. How frightening and how delicious. Then to Masi, what is your name? Masi stared at her blankly like he truly was deaf. Sugglan said he did not know their tongue. A guard came forward and gave the Chancellor Masi's sword. The Chancellor looked at the blade, examined the handle, and said in Kongori tongue, How come you by such a sword? Tis from a strange land, Masi said. Which land? Home. And that is not Kongor? The Chancellor facing the Queen said to Masi, Clearly someone did name you. What is it? The name, the name. Masi. Hmm? Masi. Hmm? The Chancellor nodded and a spear poked Masi's side. Masi, most excellent Queen, Masi said. The Chancellor repeated this to the Queen. Masi? Just Masi? Men like you fall from sky and just pick up names? Where do you hail, Master Masi? What house? The Chancellor asked. Masi from the house of Azar, from the lands of the Eastern Light. Chancellor repeated in Dolinga tongue, and the queen bleated out a laugh. Where would a man of the east of the sea live in these lands? And what is this disease that burned all the color from your skin? <laughs> Tell me now, since nobody in this court likes when you annoy their queen. I said, nobody in the court likes if you annoy the queen. The court erupted in no's and uh-uh's and shouts to the gods. And yet his hair is black as coal. Lift that sleeve. Yes, yes, yes. But, but how is this? Your shoulder is lighter than your arm. I can see it right there. Did they sew arms onto you? <laughs> My wise counsel, you better start counseling. I was looking at all of this and wondering if only the South had mad kings and queens. Sogolon stood back when I expected her to say something. I tried to read her face, but hers was not mine. If you disgusted me, you knew as soon as I bid you morning greetings. The queen was playing, and what was play to her? The ogre stood still, but his knuckles cracked from squeezing too hard. I touched his arm. Masi was no better at hiding his mind from his face, and Masi standing there, looking at everything, understanding nothing. He saw my face and fell into worry. What? He mouthed to me, but I didn't know what to say. I will see more. Remove it, the queen said. Remove your robes, said the Chancellor to Masi. What? No. No? The Queen said. That she understood, despite the Kongori tongue. Shall a Queen wait for consent from a man? 
She nodded and two of her guards grabbed Marcy. He punched one straight in the cheek, but the other pushed a knife against his throat. He turned to me and I mouthed, Peace, peace, prefect. The guard used the same knife, lodged between the garment and his shoulders and cut it off. The other guards pulled his belt and everything dropped to the floor. No gasp? I hear no gasping, the queen said. And the room erupted in gasps, coughs, wheezes, and shouts to the gods. Mossy, thinking, these are, the thing that mu- these are the things that must happen to me, straightened his back, raised his head, and stood. The women and men and eunuchs who sat at the front of the queen all crawled closer to look. Strange, strange thing, Chancellor. Why is it darker than the rest of him? Lift it, I will see the sack. <laughs> he came from Mossy's balls, and Mossy jumped. Meanwhile, in all of this, Sogolon said nothing. Just as dark. Yes, it is, it is strange, Chancellor. It is strange, most excellent. Are you a man made up of other men? <laughs> your arms darker than your shoulders, your neck darker than your chest, your buttocks whiter than your legs, and your, 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 then to the Chancellor, what do your courtesans call it? Truth, I laughed. I am not one for the company of courtesans, most excellent, said the Chancellor. Of course you are. They walk on four legs and cannot speak, but they are yours. Enough of this talk. I will know why it is so darker than the rest of him. Is that how all your men are in other lands? Is this what I have seen had I married one of the calendar princes? Eastman, why is it the color of the man standing next to you? The chancellor said that it was curious that a man with such light skin had dark balls. Mossy saw me covering a laugh and he frowned. The gods had some play with me, my queen, he said. The chancellor told the queen what Mossy said, and almost as he said it. Which man were they playing with when they took it from him to give it to you? I will know these things right now. Mossy looked perplexed again, but watched the people watching him. Still, he said nothing. Sogolon cleared her throat. Most excellent queen, remember why we came to Dolingo. I am not one for forgetting, Sogolon, especially when it was a favor, especially the way you begged for it. Masi looked at them with a shock I hid. Look at your stunned lips. And why would I, the wisest, queen, uh, the wisest of queens, not speak the savage north tongue? Especially when I constantly have to deal with savages. A child could learn it in a day. Why does my court not ooh and ah? The chancellor translated to the court, which erupted in oohs and ahs and shouts to the gods. She waved her hands and the guard poked at Mossy with their spears. He grabbed his clothes and walked back to us. I looked at them the whole time, but he only looked ahead. You share with me, you're share with me your cause because you think we are sisters, but I am queen and you are less than a flame's moth. Yes, most excellent, Sogolon said and bowed. Thank you. Thank you. So I think we have time for some questions. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the research projects in this book? Mm-hmm. Like kind of what, what were your methods in terms of researching and how much of the you know the myths that you read did you mm. live straight out and how much did you sort of bend a little bit and add your own mm-hmm. sort of imagination? Yeah. Sure. So, those of you who didn't hear, he wants to know about my research process. How much of the myths did I use? Did I use some straight completely? Did I bend some? And just that whole process. Um, I researched this book for a good two years before I wrote it. Um, and part of the research, the first thing about the re- with the research is just reading the histories. And if it was written before, say, the mid-80s, it was pretty useless. Um, I just read it for fun. As I look at these racist motherfuckers, um, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's 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 hilarious actually watching reading just how colonial and how insistent on colonial a lot of those histories are. So a lot of them were pretty useless. Um, but there's a lot of recent work being done, um, you know, by you know historians and anthropologists and and archaeologists in Africa. Um, quite a bit of it in French. So that was a that was hard. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the research I did was not just a history, but also whatever of the whatever the oral tradition has been translated. So a lot of the African myths, a lot of the African um, epics, and African epics are on par with anything from the Iliad. Um, 
the problem with a lot of these epics is that they haven't been translated by a poet yet. So if the if if all the Iliad had going for it is anthropologists translated, we probably wouldn't be thinking of the Iliad much. Um, but that still that said, it was just such a huge reservoir of information. Um, I mean, I researched enough to write the three the three books. Some of it, a lot of the monsters in the book, I just took straight from the myth from the mythologies. Um, some I added something to or I invented. But even a monster like Chip Falambula, which is this giant fish that people keep mistaking for a raft. <laughs> Until the fish eats you. Because you're stupid. Um, you know, came straight from, from a lot of those things. Ipundula the lightning bird. Um, the, the vampires in particular were, were, were I found. And they didn't need any of my help. Um, there is my, my, my favorite is um, Adzi, and Adzi is a really interesting vampire. What Adzi does is that he changes into a swarm of bugs, and then the bugs bore into your skin, usually through the pores, and they just go in and suck everything out. That was one paragraph where I was like, I don't know if I can make it to the end of this paragraph. <laughs> um, it was a thoroughly disgusting scene. I'm very proud to have written it. Um, <laughs> But that's how, you know, a lot of that was just from, from yeah, from the research. Um, yeah, it's honestly, in the midst of this research, the book almost started writing itself. And uh, the, the, the trick then was to then fashion it in narrative and not get so caught down the world building rabbit hole, which is the, which is the, 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 the risk whenever you're doing something speculative. Um, and remember that it's a story. The thing about writing, when you're writing fantasy is that I know I had to constantly remind myself that while it's a fantasy world for me, it's real for the characters in it. So it's great doing all this research, but ultimately the characters had to move as if they take this world for granted. So there's a lot that didn't, up, didn't, uh, didn't end up being used um, in the book, as it should be, and they're probably going to be in the, in the, the following too. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I was just curious. I'm sort of like at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Just for uh, research reasons. Curious, like how you approach, like, um, I don't know, a lot of the books so far have been like very like sensual. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like like love and like humanity between like the characters, especially like, queer love and stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, just like how you go about approaching that, and then like how you sort of like build it into a world that's like as fantastical as this world. Mm -hmm. That's what. Uh, it's gone. Um, you know, it's funny. The, the queer stuff in the, in the book, and, and there's a lot of queer stuff in the book, um, happened because of the research. You know, like a lot of people, you know, I believe, you know, I believe the news I hear. You know, and we talk about how homophobic Uganda is and, and Nigeria and so on. I remember years ago, I was interviewing Chimamanda Adichie. And we talked about it because, of course, I'm going to bring it up. And she said, you know, growing up in Nigeria, everybody always knew the two aunts at the end of the street. You know, and everybody knew the two brothers or the two uncles who were not brothers. Everybody knew who they were. And um, if nothing else, people knew the, the, the aunts on the street probably knew where you could get an abortion or something like that. You know, or, and even though they weren't necessarily always a part of, you know, wouldn't be invited to the, fat, the birthday party, Everybody knew that if were those two aunts to leave, the village would fall apart. Um, in in um, when I was researching this book, you know, and I came across these warriors, the Movala warriors and the Shoga warriors, and Shoga men were the only men allowed around brides. Like if I had my virgin bride, they were the only men allowed because I knew they, that they're not into into chicks. Um, and and it was known, so it's it's and it was um, you know that that sort of the 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 acceptance of queerness and 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 non-binariness and I mean kudos and all using plural pronouns that's very progressive of you Africans been doing it for four thousand years, <laughs> but good show though, um, <laughs> yeah it's it's but I didn't know any of that. And, um, you know, my friend Lola Shanyin, she's a uh, Nigerian novelist, and I remember somebody once asked her, do you think Africa will ever accept things like homosexuality and queerness and so on? And she said, Africa was born ready until a bunch of TV preachers from America came and told them no. <laughs> um, that that the, the homophobia in Africa is pretty recent and it's pretty invented. 
And um, and it's 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 gonna be interesting seeing the damage that evangelical Christianity does to the continent. Because for example, this has nothing to do with queerness, but it's a really interesting anecdote. One of the challenges that a lot of doctors have treating schizophrenia in a lot of African countries is that the voices are all affirmative. So if you have your own personal cheerleading squad, why would you want to get rid of them? Here, they're telling you, kill yourself. There, your voices are going, you can do it. You're beautiful. Why would you want to get rid of that? They can be annoying in that they don't stop cheering you. And sometimes you do want the, the cheerleaders to go home. But they're perplexed on how to treat it. And one of the reasons, one of the theories put, put, uh, put forward about it is that in a lot of the African religions and mythologies and so on, we think voices are the ancestors. Um, they're also having that problem with East Asia because they, then they think the voices are all the divine beings all over. So it's going to be interesting as we now think all these voices are demons. What's going to happen to schizophrenia in these countries? That is so off course from what you asked, but it made me think about it. Um, to bring it all the way back. So I was just borrowing from the history. The, 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 those elements are the retro elements in the book, which was a pleasant and affirmative surprise for me. Um, you know, those were, that's, that's, that, that was the most by the book part of the book. And it was very fascinating to read. And I knew it had to be in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I saw a hand back here. Yeah. Mm hmm. Really? I want to know those people. I don't know. Myths about Jamaican culture. Well, Lord knows not all of us smoke weed. I personally get paranoid when I smoke weed, so I don't. Um, hell, since we're talking about queerness, let's talk about queerness. You know, um, you know, I remember I was on a panel and somebody said, how's it like living in the most homophobic nation in the world? And I was like, I had no idea Jamaica was spelled R-U-S-S-I-A. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I was in Jamaica, which is not to say there aren't homophobic elements there. Of course there are. And is it acute sometimes? Yeah. And also because of the church. But I don't know if an anti-church rant. Um, but at the same time, so I went back to Jamaica 2016, 2016, and I met the Gay Students Association um, at university. I didn't even know there was one. And um, I had my It Gets Better speech ready, and I was going to deliver it. And they're like, we don't want to hear that shit. Do you, do you know Beyonce? <laughs> I don't. But the, I, the, the fact that they they that there was a generation of queer kids who absolutely refused to give up just being young and thinking, crisis for me is when am I going to get the new Rihanna record? <laughs> Not, am I going to live tomorrow? And I thought that was super, super you know, refreshing. And, 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 and it, you know, it, was, it, was, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Um, I don't know what other myths there are. I don't know. That we're great in bed, next to that one's true. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I have to think about that. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> That's true. People there are no white people in Jamaica. It's so weird. <laughs> Questions? Oh, yes, at the back. God, we haven't even we haven't even started we haven't even started thinking about writers yet. The book is not even two weeks old. I, you know what, I mean, on one hand, I would like to be involved. On the other hand, I really like seeing how people interpret stuff I do, stuff that I'm not, I just, um, you know, to me, my book is like, I always look at my book like it's my fourth child, you know, so like first or second, I'm like, don't touch my kid. <laughs> By fourth, I'm like, take her, please. <laughs> and I kind of have that, actually, this is my fourth book, so... <laughs> So I, I also have that idea because, you know, I mean, I always think when I'm, re when I, if, if a million people or two million people read Lord of the Rings, that's two million different Frodo's. And I've always found that just that idea just so electrifying. 
So I actually am curious about how other people will, will read it. As long as they don't do dumb shit to my book, because then I will go on Facebook and shame their asses. Um, but yeah, I mean, at this stage, we're still, you know, we're still just, we're still sort of talking and we're still figuring it out. And we're still, because, you know, I mean, it's a pretty big book. And how, how, how does that translate into store filmmaking, which is very much about economy, is going to be interesting. Of course, that means there's some elements from the book that simply won't make the film, which means you're still going to have to buy the book. Um, but, you know, but that's how it is. And, and I'm, a, you know, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge student and follower of cinema, and I'm a big respecter of, of um, cinema. I mean, I've, I mean you know, I probably I'm more influenced by film than by books. So it's, it'll be exciting to see, but it's so early. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm sweeping. Yes. Why are people asking me this question already? <laughs> I've started, all right? The book's not even two weeks old. And I'm already here. When is the next one? You know, I've started. I've started. The, great, the cool thing about, I mean, the cool thing about writing, um, the follow-up and the one before it is again because it's different characters telling the same story. Um, things will be very, very different. Like people who have read it bad now have had some emotional attachments to a few characters in the book. You're gonna regret that. <laughs> <laughs> just, just putting that out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, my publisher thinks it's gonna be ready in two years. <laughs> six of which, six months of which are already passed. So I don't know. I I have never disappointed my publisher yet. So you never know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, for me it wasn't that much of a it wasn't that much of a shift for for two reasons. One, there were always fantastical elements in the stuff I wrote. Um, Brief history is probably the closest I've come to a realistic novel, um, but it, you know, one of the narrators is a ghost, and uh, yeah, and uh, so to me, there and all my novels that element was all was always there. Um, but the other reason why it wasn't that hard a shift for me is that I've always read everything, um, despite being told not to buy my, my lit teachers, like, you can't read trash or whatever. Um, I don't even know what that means, because, to I me, mean, it, it was so hard just to get a book. And not because, you know, they weren't there. It's just that, um, you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm my own boys all day. They don't read. You know, um, I, I grab books from wherever, whoever, you know, whatever I could buy, borrow, beg, steal, um, whatever. And because of that, because bo the book you read was the book that was there, it could be anything. Um, I still remember when I read um, Jackie Collins' Hollywood Wives. <laughs> that was a glorious 24 hours. First book I read in one sitting. I was, thir what was I, 13? I finished that book and I was like, I was grown now. <laughs> it's like, I am an adult. Uh, I, you know, it, it's, it's, I've read that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still pretty devoted to comics. Um, so for me, it, for me, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like a jump. What was different, I think, here is all the world building. Because so far, I've written worlds that I kind of know. Um, you know, I, I kind of know Jamaica. I've just seen Roger right in front of me. <laughs> I kind of know Jamaica. I kind of know, um, you know, I, I certainly knew quite a bit about slavery. Um, this was, uh, you know, as I said, I started out on a mission to read first, not really to, to write. So that was different. And the thing is, the, the problem with world building and, and sci-fi and fantasy is you do all this world building, then you have to make it look as if you didn't. Because it's 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 easy to fall into the trap of making your own book feel like you're a tourist in it, so that I think that was a, probably the big difference. But for me, it still felt like a transition, as opposed to a, a very like a genre shift. Yeah. Mm 
Yeah, thank you. Yes. Cinematic influences. Wow. Um, who am I? Cinematic influences. This is this may be the most pretentious part of the evening, <laughs> but I'm really, really influenced by Bertolucci. I quite like Bertolucci. I quite like Melville. Um, Le Samurai, something I watch all the time. Um, what else did I? The, the cinematic influence. One, actually, a screenwriting influence for me is Boogie Nights. I know it doesn't yet seem that Boogie Nights would have anything to do with an African epic. Um, yeah, because Boogie Nights is such a perfect script, it fools you into thinking half of the actors in that film can act. <laughs> like Heather Graham, come on. <laughs> but her lines are so incredible. Um, what else have I, I'm a big follower of? I mean, certainly a lot of Bertolucci, a lot of Rossellini, a lot of Italian neorealism. It's just funny because I don't write realism. Um, who else did I really, really watch a lot of? Agnes Varda. Um, so one of my absolute favorite films is um, this film. It was it probably was my favorite film of 2017. No, that was last two years ago. Remember my favorite film of 2016? It's a film called Hard to Be a God. If you've ever seen it, you have to watch it. Hard to Be a God may be the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And by disgusting, I don't mean moral, morally. I mean it's so grimy and mucky. It's like, see, this is the Middle Ages. It's just, you, you, feel, like, you feel like you get an infection just watching it. <laughs> it's so brilliant. Um, but it, it, it also, you know, it, it kind of again reminds me that I'm writing a world that is beautiful, but also kind of mucky and grimy and dirty and, and people die and so on. So yeah, I, a lot of European directors, funnily enough. Um, but at the same time, I do like Sweep. I'm, I like Spielberg as much as everybody else. Um, you know, and and, and I'm, I'm as big of, as influenced by him and and all these you know the Western people, John Ford, who I really shouldn't be influenced by, considering what a racist maniac John Wayne turned out to be. Actually, not turned out to be. We kind of all knew that. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, in terms of how they influence, oh, Kurosawa, of course. If I if I actually give a lecture on Rashomon which I did in Canada, it was so great to do it, especially to not talk about books. Um, but I think that the, one of the things I'll say I did get from cinema, two things. One is um, how much um, working on dialogue, which is very important to me, but also um, economy. Um, when I'm teaching my students, I, say, you know, I always say, you know, a sunset doesn't need your help. Just describe the damn sunset. It will take care of the rest. And I think that sort of... Um, in film, all that poetry, all that extra layers have to come from the actual scene that they're showing. So, you know, my challenge sometimes with students is how can you give me that poetry in the extra levels without, resist, without resorting to a simile or a metaphor? And I think that cinema does that really well. So I keep, yeah, so I keep watching and I keep being drawn, drawn to them, draw from them in that way. Yeah, thank you. Way at the back, yes. Damn, what comics am I like? So Hellboy is finally in hell, which I've waited years for. Um, what else am I reading? I'm reading, so the one thing that, that was really great about talking to Seth Maz is that he's a bigger comic geek than me. So he put me onto Black Hammer, which I really, really like. It's like if Umbrella Academy was darker. Um, what else am I? What else am I reading? Reading lately? Um, Hellblazer, maybe my all-time favorite comic. So I've been reading that. I'm reading Fables. Um, me and my friends every day just go, "Aren't you glad how unfilmable Saga is?" <laughs> uh, because you know they're gonna mess it up. Um, yeah. So Saga. What else? So uh, in, I always reread Love and Rockets. You know, I've I've said it. I said it in that New York, in, my, in a New York Times article. I do think the Palomar story is as up to the best American novel of the past thirty-five years, and it's only competition is probably Death of Speedy by Jaime or or Duck Feet. Um, I could go on and on about Love and Rockets. It's the most, some of the most phenomenal fiction ever to come out of this country, um, and I keep rereading them and stealing from them. So. <laughs>
So that's what I've been reading. There's a hand up over, yeah. Um, what do you mean? In original, you said so many viewpoints. What do you mean? So, like, different characters, you know, different things from Oh. Mm-hmm. I know in my previous book, the only way I could get around so many different perspectives is to work on one character per day. Um, with this novel, it's one person telling a story, but he's all over the place. And I think, um, and there are lots of reasons for that. One, one that I think... Um, a lot of the ancient stories are kind of all over the place. Um, you know, stories lead to stories and lead to stories. Um, that's what, that's, I mean, that's Arabian Nights, you know, or the adventures of Amir Hamza and all those stories. And it's, it's, it's funny. The, the older the stories get is the more they depend on the sophistication of the reader or the listener. I think it's only recently we start to want literature as pre-chewed food. Um, you know, back then they'd, be, they'd have multiple narratives and polynarratives right on top of each other, and you're listening. You're not even reading them; you're listening, and 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 so on. And, and I think I still write that way, um, as if it should be read aloud. Um, in terms of the different perspective, the only way sometimes I have to put charts up or notes so I know who's saying what and who should be doing what, or I just go mad. Um, you know, I just can't keep all that in my head. So I do have like posters all over the wall. And I, sometimes I'll even have like dialogue charts. Like this person always says what he means. This person always beats around the bush. This person such and such and such. Um, just so I can keep track of it all. Because I do write books with tons of people in them. Um, and it still has to kind of, you know, it still has to flow. Um, but if it also turns into cacophony, that's, that's cool too. Um, you know, um, one or two readers have said they felt adrift sometimes reading the book. I'm like, that's good. Um, you should be lost a little bit. You should, you know, I mean, the current will bring you back. But, yeah, it should be. They, 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 you know, they, they, they back coming back to the oral tradition, which I keep harping on, you wanted to be lost in story. That was, it. I mean, you can't go home and watch TV afterwards. That story time was it. So, of course, you want to be thoroughly lost, and you had to give yourself over um, to story. And I think, and that's one of the things that I'm kind of in my way of pushing for when people read, read my stuff. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay, you and then Roger. Yeah. Oh, go, go, go. Yeah. I know him. He can wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. I love it, and um, and that's one of the reasons why the character also tells stories within the stories. Um, you know, it's it's I like the idea of writing stories to be read aloud, which is why I'm already in deep envy of Dion, who did the audiobook. Because every time there's a song he sings, I'm like, what, what, you think I'm not going to sing on my damn tour? <laughs> it's like, so, like no. Um, but yeah, I, there are things, you know, I've, I've, one of the things I always tell my, tell my students when I'm teaching, I said, you know, there, there are things your eyes will miss that your ears will catch. Um, you know, look at, so Robert Alter translated the first, the five, first five books of the, the Old Testament. And there's a line in the King James Version, all the versions, where it says, just from the dust came Adam. That's how, that's how we know it. He changed it for, to, from the hummus came the human. And you know, there are things that happen in, the, in what he just did that, you know, if you're listening, you suddenly got assonance, you got resonance, you got something almost like rhyme. And those are things that, that the listener, the ear snaps and picks up on. And and in, in when I'm writing, that's kind of all I want to do it as well. That it should be something that it should it should be read a lot. I think a novel should have volume. A novel should have volume control. Um, you know, a novel should sometimes scream, sometimes shout, sometimes whisper. Just as though I think a novel should smell. You know, it should smell and it should taste. 
Uh, that I stole from, from Sebastian Unger. So Sebastian has a trick which he will never admit. It's like he always gets the, first, the five senses down in the first 50 words. Read any of his things, you'll see it. Five senses, always nailed by, by word 50. So I take that and steal a shit out of that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it should be, I still think it should be, you know, sound like it's being read aloud. Okay. Roger. Good question because I had a, I have a really good editor, um, and you know the, the, my editor. My editor is um, very sort of. Um, he looks at a lot of the sort of deeper nuances in a story, which I can sometimes miss. Um, like a good like, for example, um, how when a character enters a room changes the nature of the room or changes the quality of the room or how people react to them. Which is something I always forget because I'm just moving on with story. I remember um, with 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 Nightwoman, with my second novel, this character comes back in under the suspicion of murder, like a really gruesome series of murders. Like she pretty much burned down a house and everybody in it, including a few children. Um, and it was my editor who said, because I just had her return back to her previous estate and just move on with the novel. And it was my editor who said, but. If somebody comes back on a real cloud of suspicion, wouldn't that change the nature of the relationship of everybody there? Some people would, who weren't scared of her before would be scared of her now. Some who actually like that stuff would admire her now. That it would have, it would have completely changed the tenor of the room, and I didn't think about it. Uh, and an editor can do things like that, I think. Um, you know, with Brief History, Brief History was trickier because it's not like an editor, it's Jamaican. <laughs> and do anything, and what I find sometimes, sometimes is that they'll see a, they'll see an error and think it's Jamaican. I'm like, no, 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 that's a typo. It's like it's a, it's it's a typo. I'll tell you if you fix something that shouldn't be fixed. Um, so there, there is still that because you know I I don't really write English English, and and so that can be that can be um uh, you know and and. An issue. What I find certainly with this with this book and with the with the other books is, despite writing so much, there are things that I sometimes end up underwriting, and as good as I can pick out that. But I don't have I don't have like a garden lish, you know. I don't. My editor is not a chopper, and and he's not. He's very good on saying this doesn't work, but he will never tell me how to fix it, and that can be really frustrating actually, especially when he says for the third time, no, nah, you still haven't gotten it. And I have a fourth time, mm -mm, you're still not there yet. I was like, do you want to tell me how to fix it? And I was like, mm-mm. And he just go, oh, yeah, I think you have it now. And I was like, gee, well, thanks for all your help. <laughs> but that's, yeah, he, he, that's, that's the kind of um, relationship we have. I absolutely adore him. And, and you know, he, but that's how he is. It's very, it can seem hands-off, but it's not. He just really trusts that the reader, the writer is going to, you know, if the writer made it this far in the book, they know how to solve it or they'll figure it out or we will just push back the publishing date. <laughs> that didn't happen. Yes. Robin Miles. Yes, yeah. Particularly for brief history, yeah, I audition, audition them, and we talk quite a bit. Um, actually, the uh, the the um, Dion, funny enough, caught a typo. The typo was one comma, and that one comma completely messed up a sentence, and I went on the warper because nobody would fix it. Yeah, I basically had to go around to Penguin Canada and get them to go in there. But anyway, so. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's because I mean um, I mean I'm not reading them, but I know how I want them to sound. 
and um, and so far I've had really really excellent readers. Dion is huh? Robin is fantastic. She read and my first novel, and um, and Dion Dion just did Dion did Octavia Butler's um, I think he did Kindred, and he also did Evicted, that great nonfiction book from a couple of years ago. So he's pretty versatile. I'm still pissed off that he sang all the songs. <laughs> Because I'm like, dude, do you realize the standard you're raising here? It's all right. Anyway. I did not look over here. Somebody, yep. Oh, you're just saying we're out of time or one more question? One more question. Make it good. All right. At the back again. Yep. Has all of your books have amazing Mm-hmm. Oh, I just write. It all just comes out. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, have, I think I go through two phases with opening lines. There's a first line I write just to get the book going. And, um, and this is for people who, you know, that first line pressure can be crippling, I think, for a lot of writers. I just, you know, for me, I always re remember that the first, the first, wor the first lines that... that um, the reader eventually sees is probably rarely the first line I wrote. Uh, you know, in, in brief history, that first line is on page 458. Uh, um, and usually by the time I get to the end of a novel, all of what has happened is already influencing how I'm gonna, I want to begin it. So a lot of times that, that final first line or final first paragraph comes from rereading and reading the novel. Um, you know, if, if anybody has the galley, they'd realize that it's a completely different page one than what's in the galley. Somebody was reading along last night. I'm like, uh, yeah, there's, there's nothing there. I may change this on nearly every page. Um, but yeah, it's something that I, I think about, but I don't think about when I'm beginning a novel. Because the novel is still figuring itself out. I mean, 50 pages in, you're still figuring yourself out. 100 pages in, you're still sort of figuring it out. There's, that's... More than likely, you're going to come back and rewrite those first 50 pages anyway. So, you know, take the pressure off yourself. I think sometimes people put third draft pressure on a first draft. That everything must be perfect, everything must be mean. It's like, no, uh, if anything, a first draft is you figuring out what to write. So that first line, all that first line is doing is getting you into the story. You'll, and, and the progress of the story, the progress of the novel, even the end of the novel will tell you how it begins. I think. Yeah. I think that's it. So I'm going to be signing some books. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.